This is the New South Wales Country Hour with Kim Honan on ABC New South Wales. Welcome to the Country Hour here in the lunch break of the cricket. Kim Honan in the chair for Michael Condon today. Coming up in the next half hour, New South Wales Farmers backs calls by the Prime Minister to support additional powers for the ACCC to crack down on supermarket price gouging if required. Energy Co has scrapped plans for the Walker hub of the New England Renewable Energy Zone. And shortly, could we see this wet weather see a spread of fire ants in the state's north? Text me if you like, 0467 922 684. But on the weather, let's get the latest from Neil Fraser from the Bureau of Meteorology. Good afternoon, Neil. Good afternoon, Kim. Are we still seeing rain across the north and the east of the state and how long before it eases up? Yes, well, it's quite active at the moment from the northwest slopes and plains across to the parts of the mid-north coast. Lots of thunderstorms have popped up in the last hour or so. And a couple of decent falls already since 9am. Taruna's had 26 millimetres and Gunaganu up to 19. So fairly active and potential for some severe thunderstorms this afternoon and into the evening up through that area. So basically, mid-north coast, northern rivers, northern tablelands, northwest slopes and plains, and the northern outskirts of the Hunter may be in it, but it's more likely north from there. So watch out for any warnings that come out this afternoon. There's a fair chance there will be warnings. And there's even potential for some intense rainfall if the supercell-type thunderstorms develop. So watch out for that. But certainly heavy rains are most likely from these thunderstorms, but it could be some damaging winds and even some large hail as well. Good news is, though, that system is contracting northeast, and even though the thunderstorms may continue overnight in the far northeast, the trend is that tomorrow, unless you're in the right up near the Queensland border, most of New South Wales should be dry. So thunderstorms continuing in that far northeast, so northern part of the northern rivers, northern tablelands, but generally the rest of the state back to fairly dry for Friday. In that area on Saturday, still potential for some showers and thunderstorms and could be severe. Again, more likely north of the border, but they could just spill over the border to the south. But generally, again, Saturday looks like being quite dry and that continues on Sunday. So most of inland New South Wales looks like being dry for much of the next week. There's a change coming through along the coast again. There's one going up today. It's fairly weak, but a stronger one coming through on Monday and Tuesday, that'll bring some showers back into coastal areas and the eastern part of the ranges, but it won't spill over the divide. So it looks, as I said, pretty dry. Other thing to note is temperatures are rising back into the 40s in much of the inland over the coming days, probably starting from the weekend and going through next week. We're watching a, a potential tropical cyclone in the Coral Sea that may develop uh, during next week. At this stage, it looks like remaining well to the north, but not to say that in longer term, you know, beyond a week, it might start to affect northern New South Wales at least, but wait and see on that one. Mm, so not many dry days in the next week or so? Well, no, pretty dry for most areas. Um, if you're on the coast, you'll get some showers coming back in uh, from Monday, but certainly, unless you're in that far northeastern corner of the state, it looks like being fairly dry and, and quite hot. So, yes, so I guess fire danger will start to rise again with the, the heat drying out. There's been a lot of moisture, over, the, as you know, over the last week or so, but it uh, looks like we're in for a fairly settled period with um, relatively dry conditions for, for quite a while. And, Neil, there's still some minor and flood warnings in place across the state? Yes, yes. So they'll continue, especially the inland ones. 
Kapra and the Paru and so forth, they, they tend to go for, for weeks. But certainly, unless we get some really locally intense rainfall, uh, leading some river rises, more like flash flooding is the most likely effect of these severe thunderstorms when they develop. And anything else to report today? No, that's probably about it. So, all in all, a fairly settled period. Once we get through today, as I said, you're still very active up in that northeast and potential for some severe thunderstorms and some heavy rain. Great. We'll chat again tomorrow. Okay, thanks, Kim. That is Neil Fraser from the Bureau of Meteorology. Well, the Invasive Species Council is concerned the recent wet weather across the northern rivers and the Gold Coast could speed up the spread of fire ants. But the National Fire Ant Eradication Program says while we should be concerned about events or circumstances that can spread fire ants, the risk of wet weather and the rafting of fire ants needs to be put into context. I spoke to the Head of Operations, Graham Dudgeon. So fire ants do spread by rafting. They, of course, also spread by flying um, and uh, by human-assisted movement so they can spread in soil and gravel, etc. The rafting spread normally happens when there is a fairly high density of fire ant nests. So floodwaters are on an area for um, 24 hours or more. The fire ants may decide that um, they're not going to survive. And so they will, in fact, take the queen, create a raft um, by linking their legs together and take to the floodwaters. And they just get moved with whatever the current is. So we do see rafting, but it will really only be in areas where there is a high density of fire ants and that's back up in southeast Queensland. So we're not likely to see a spread from those nests in southeast Queensland across the border south? And the reason that we're not expecting that is because the streams within southeast Queensland where there are fire ants, they essentially point back or flow back into the area where the ants already are, um, not out of the area. So they're not... The rafting is not a flood, sorry, not a spread vector for fire ants from southeast Queensland. What could happen is that fire ants that have been moved by human-assisted movement, which is what we suspect the Mwilumbar um, detection is about, um, they may spread. But there's such a low density there. We only found half a dozen nests in a very short strip of curbing in a new industrial estate. Um, yes, they can fly out to five kilometres. We've surveyed and, in fact, treated for fire ants out to half a kilometre from that point, found no more fire ants, done even more surveying out to five kilometres and found no more fire ants. We can't be absolutely sure, so we are going to be treating out to five kilometres just to make sure. There's a very, very low risk that any flooding around Mwilumbar would have moved any ants because it's highly unlikely there were ants there to be moved. Well, at the moment, baiting in northern New South Wales around that South Mwilumbar site has been put on hold uh, due to the, the wet weather, I believe. What can you tell me about that? Uh, the weather always is a factor in us treating fire ants. Um, every year that we treat fire ants in South East Queensland, um, there are many days during the year where we can't treat because of weather because uh, um, we can't put the bait down when it's wet and we can't put the bait down if it's going to get rained on uh, heavily within a short period of time after we put it down. And we've factored that into the timing of the six rounds of bait that we've put down. 
So we're still uh, progressing and we're still on track for the treatment around Mwilumba. That is Graham Dudgeon from the National Fire Ant Eradication Program. And he says that when the sky clears and the ground dries up, aerial drops of the bait will commence in the five kilometres around the South Mwilumba site. It is 17 to 1. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Kim Honan with you today. Well, fuel giant Shell has reportedly suspended all shipments through the Red Sea. Yemen's Houthi rebels have been targeting ships in retaliation for Israel's strikes on Gaza, prompting action from the US and UK. Paul Zalai is the director of the Freight and Trade Alliance and he says it's a serious problem for global trade and could have impact on consumers. The Strait of Hamas is a a critical and strategic uh, waterway. At its narrowest point, it's only 30 kilometres, um, 39 kilometres wide. So it's very high risk to attacks. And um, again, Shell and, as you said, the other uh, suppliers of uh, oil and petroleum uh, are taking a very cautious approach to this uh, matter. In an Australian context, it is it is very important. Um, we receive approximately about 50% of our petroleum product uh, from Singapore and then the rest uh, predominantly from other parts of Asia. But they receive about 40% of their supply of raw uh, crude oil from um, the Middle East. So it's an area that we'll be watching of great interest. Um, from a broader perspective of interest to our membership and the work we do. Paul, what else goes through the Red Sea? Obviously, fuel and oil, uh, different types of commodities, but uh, what other items on the global supply chain are going through that, that very narrow channel? Yeah, look, we're focused on containerised trade, which will handle everything from pharmaceutical to building materials, um, you know, to food goods. Um, so anything that comes in and out of uh, the country uh, in sea containers that goes through that region will be affected. On a global basis, it's about 30% of global trade passes through the Red Sea and the Suez. Um, in an Australian context, it's not as big, but still about 15%. Um, so what it is happening for, for our importers and exporters, um, you know, luckily, or I shouldn't say luckily, thanks to the work of the, the international um, shipping lines, they are giving us an alternative. So we are, we are seeing vessels now going around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, that's taking an extra 10 to 14 days on normal sailing time. But again, as I said, we've got to be grateful that we've got a service at all. And what will happen, Paul, if this end, ends up being uh, a prolonged situation in that channel uh, where there are threats of attacks, ongoing threats of attacks uh, for many weeks or indeed months? What will happen to global supply chains and also will there be delays? Will there be an, uh, an impact on fuel prices here in Australia? The trade will continue. It will come at an extra cost. Um, we're seeing freight rates already now from um, parts of Europe to Australia are doubling. Um, we're also seeing a range of different surcharges that have been implemented, and, and that, that is hurting our import and export market. That was Paul Zalai from the Freight and Trade Alliance speaking with Bridget Brennan. Kim Honan with you on the Country Hour. Well, Energy Co has announced it won't be progressing with plans for the southern hub 
of the New England Renewable Energy Zone. In their January update, the agency says it's proceeding with four out of the five hubs following community consultation, which uncovered an optimal pathway for the six gigawatts of network capacity needed to get it up and running. This ultimately means the hub planned for the Walker area won't go ahead. Energy Co's Acting Director of Planning and Communities, Alex Hall, spoke more with Christy Reading. Uh, so the southern hub is south of the township of Walker and it's in the area which we refer to and is referred to as the Brackendale area. Uh, and it is one of the five hubs that was part of the preliminary study corridor which we released in June of last year. Uh, and as you mentioned in your excellent summary at the start, uh, we have made the decision through consultation and the outcomes from that to defer that piece of infrastructure and the connecting transmission line to it to a future stage um, of our project scope. Okay, so you use the term there, deferred. Is it totally off the table? It's not permanently off the table in perpetuity. However, what the practical uh, ramifications and and outcome of this deferral decision that we've made, what that means is that it won't be included in the current project scope. So when we have a scoping report that is lodged and put on public display, and as we work through the environmental impact statement uh, throughout this year, uh, that piece of infrastructure and that connecting transmission line won't be included uh, as part of that footprint. So for landholders that otherwise would have been impacted by that by that piece of infrastructure, uh, we don't require access to their properties uh, at this stage uh, and we were able to start communicating that first to those directly impacted landholders uh, yesterday. And this is all off the back of community consultation? Both uh, community landholders uh, and generators. So as I mentioned, we released the preliminary study corridor in June of last year. And so consultation has been uh, ongoing throughout uh, the subsequent seven months, uh, which includes all members of the community, landholders and the generators who are active uh, in the res area. Uh, and that, that has led to the decision to defer it uh, and reprioritise uh, the other four hubs. Okay. So any actual projects that will be canned as a result of this? No. Uh, part of what we've been doing with generators, uh, both you know from the registration of interest process and expression of interest process that were done in 2021 and 2022 and our structured engagement all throughout last year, is uh, we have been told by them that right now there's not active projects in the area. So a good way to frame it is that they're not currently on foot. Uh, so that is feedback that we're getting directly from them that is cross-referenced and confirmed by landholders in the area. Uh, and so there's no active projects that are impacted by this decision. Energy Co's Acting Director of Planning and Communities, Alex Hall. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Kim Honan with you today. Well, the state's peak farming body has backed the PM's comments, supporting additional powers for the competition regulator to address the rising cost of groceries. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says he's open to increasing the powers for the ACCC to crack down on supermarket price gouging if required. The president of the New South Wales Farmers Association, Xavier Martin, told Josh Becker... Farmers are seeing their own produce sold on the supermarket shelf for up to 10 times what they're being paid at the farm gate. Our farmers uh, would welcome that announcement and uh, the Prime Minister's determination to act on 
what is clearly uh, unfair pricing, both for farmers and the consumer. And uh, we've got to deal with this. And the ACCC is the appropriate operator. It's got uh, it's got teeth, and if it needs further powers, uh, you know, for example, to break these monopoly or duopoly powers up, uh, the abuse of powers that's going on, um, then that's to be welcomed. To your mind, is it the uh, red meat market or is it fresh vegetables that needs to be investigated when it comes to, you know, these competition issues? Our members are reporting it's right across the whole production of animals and plants. You know, it really doesn't matter whether it's dairy or fruit or vegetables or meat, eggs, poultry, meat, you know, with a whole lot, really, are all, uh, many are reporting that they see their own produce on the shelves and when it gets to the checkout, the pricing, um, you know, they're seeing it at three, five, ten times the value that the farmer's getting paid. Uh, the ACCC chair told the Nine Papers recently that she's carefully looking at taking legal action over alleged deceptive conduct on discounts from the supermarkets. Would you would you like to see the ACCC pursue legal action against the supermarkets? Oh, look, the full range of options have got to be open to the ACCC. They've got the powers to actually compel witnesses to turn up, unlike uh, a Senate inquiry or uh, this proposed Dr Emerson inquiry. Yeah, the ACCC's got teeth, and if they use those powers, compel witnesses to turn up, they have to bring their contracts and their calculations with them, tell the truth, and uh, look, as a nation, if these mega middlemen keep gouging the system, we've got to be prepared to break them up. That is Xavier Martin, President of the New South Wales Farmers Association. Well, an organic farmer from Lawn near Port Macquarie on the state's mid-north coast says that consumers should consider buying direct. So the only way to make sure there's some fairness, make sure that the farmers aren't getting ripped off, that the customers aren't getting price kept, is to sacrifice some of that convenience that we're used to and support farmers directly. That's part of a one and a half minute Instagram video post by James Smith from Sohip Organics, which has gone viral. His family owned farm sells produce direct to 200 consumers across the mid north coast every week. And the response to the post inspired him to pull together a list of more than 100 other farmers who also sell direct. He spoke out about the control of the two major supermarkets after reading about Bundaberg grower Trevor Cross dumping 2,000 tonnes of pumpkin after being offered just $1.50 each when the supermarkets were selling them for $20. Yeah, and then that just jumped, you know, urged me sort of to jump on, on the camera and, and put my two cents worth in. Um, and obviously it resonated. I mean, for a number of factors, but uh, clearly the biggest one that people are feeling the pinch. And when people are under pressure and then they feel like they're being taken advantage of, well, I think that really create some um, anger and frustration in the community and clearly the uh, the way our post went viral is evidence of that. And what are the benefits for consumers? They're obviously, as you said, feeling the pinch. Can they find a better price buying direct from the farmers than what they can actually do in the supermarket? So some people are going to be surprised. Obviously, we're certified organic and most of our prices, especially for what we grow, they're going to be in between... Um, so they're going to be cheaper than the organic prices in the supermarkets um, because they're coming direct from us. Um, but obviously they're slightly ex- more expensive than the non-organic prices in uh, Coles and Woolworths because we're doing everything manually and not using any chemicals. Um, but where I think they're going to be surprised is 
some people are going to think that they, oh, if I go to the direct to the farm, that's going to cut out all those middlemen and the supermarkets, so I should be able to get it at a quarter of the price or at least half the price I'm paying at the supermarket. But the reality is, is that the supermarkets are working on economies of scale. Uh, they're working with very big farmers that are producing enormous amounts of produce, and they can get that price point down. They have such a low margin that they can get that price point down so cheap and then ship it off to the to the supermarkets in those volumes. But they're working on about a 3% margin. Now, if you're a small family farm and you're only turning over, you know, eighty dollars to $100,000 worth of, of produce at a 3% margin, um, you're really, in this day and age, not going to be making much of a living. So I think customers will get... They, they're going to find certain farms that are going to be able to do it cheaper than the supermarkets because of logistical reasons within the supply chain, but I don't think they should always expect for it to be cheaper. What they should be honing in on is that the farmer's not getting ripped off. Um, you know, the farmer's not sending a truckload of vegetables to a supermarket and getting it turned away. Um, you know, the farmer's not making a $9 million loss like Trevor Cross did, and he's almost on his knees. Um, that the money's going straight to the farmer, and they're going to be able to you know, sustain what they're doing, do a good job, grow good food, uh, and, and look after their family. And, and, and you would know more than anyone the decline in family farms over the last 20 years is uh, horrendous. So unless we want to just have big corporate farms supplying big corporate uh, duopolies, uh, you know, we, we need to start supporting our farmers directly. That is James Smith from Lawn near Port Macquarie on the Country Hour. Kim Honan with you. Well, widespread storm rain across the northwest has seen plenty of dryland crops go in the ground. Some areas like Gara and Bumai have seen hundreds of millimetres since December, turning summer planting right around. While Maury agronomist Sam Simons was out checking paddocks, he took a moment to have a chat with Lara Webster and told her crops are tracking well. We were lucky because come October, like the harvest went pretty quickly. It was a very dry winter, and then um, you know, we were starting to make plans for winter crop for next year, and then it started raining, some big rain. So a lot of the dry land summer crop here did go in sort of in the last week of November into the first half of December, and so a lot of those crops have had decent rain. Um, while it's been varying from the east to the west, they've all benefited, and so the crops are at a stage where they're handling a bit of heat that we're getting now fine. It's not being detrimental at all. How big a saving grace was that, that rain that we saw around December? Uh, it, made, it made all the difference. We, we knew that we had a decent profile west of the Newell Highway because not a lot of winter crop got sown. We had a good profile, but the top sort of six inches was pretty dry. Like There was a 30 centimetre band there that was very dry. So we didn't need... A massive amount of rain. We needed like four inches to get going, and, and that's what we got. We sort of got two to three inches, and then we got a follow-up of two to three inches, and and bang, everyone started planting after that. So how much of that late crop has gone in now, when you look particularly at the, the sorghum and cotton that's in the ground? Look, everyone's done planting now for sure, and I guess the estimates for the glider region was 100,000 hectares of dryland cotton that went in. Some of that was planted ahead of rain, but a lot of it was planted afterwards as well. The sorghum area wouldn't be that high. Um, yeah, it varies depending where you go. But, the, yeah, a fair bit of late sorghum did go in as well to the east of town and also west, where, where it was less conducive to cotton or where it was getting a bit late in the window. 
going forward, Sam Simons, uh, ideally, what do you need from here on in so, so people can get a, a cracker crop off? Look, we can withstand a bit of dry weather now, and we do have some heat coming, mm. even though there's storms forecast. But look, as long as we can pick up some storms in February and March, we will be all right. We will be able to harvest and we will be able to pick cotton. So we just need to have some of those storms that we do typically get in the in the back half of Feb and March. And look, um, we should at least hopefully achieve average, average yield, if not better. That is Maury agronomist Sam Simon speaking to Lara Webster. It's nearing one o'clock on the Country Hour. Don't let the cuteness fool you. Come on, puppies. A new litter of muster dogs are setting to work. Five Australian Border Collie pups. Can't help the life, eh? Five ambitious stock handlers. Our trainers have got their work cut out for them. Who will rise to the challenge and become the new champion? You look after me and I'll look after you. A brand new season of Muster Dogs. <laughs> Sunday nights on ABC TV and stream all episodes on ABC iView. Kim Honan with you for the country and time to head to the markets. And first up today with the results from the Wagga Lamb Market. Good afternoon, Leanne Axe. Good afternoon. After the strong sale of the previous week, lamb prices faced a decline spanning from $12 to $35, notwithstanding a substantial decrease of 20,000 lambs. Heavy lambs across all weight categories bore the brunt of this downturn, although competition for heavy lambs remained robust, but buyers were cautious about exceeding 700 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Within the 26 to 30 kilo range, heavy lambs were sold at prices of 175 to 215, while those over 30 kilos commanded prices between 206 and 260. The overall trajectory of the trade land market signalled a reduction of 10 to 15 dollars with specific demand observed for neatly shorn trade lambs. Trade lambs varied from 130 to 174, averaging 703 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Lambs suitable for feedlots and restockers witnessed varying demand patterns. The heavier trade weights intended for feeding experienced a dip of $13, while other trade weights remained steady. The bulk of the sale was $90 to 150 for those to feed on or return to the paddock. Merino trade lambs sold at 139 to 175 Hoggett's numbers dwindled with sales ranging anywhere from 88 to 153 I'm Ducks for MLA. And to Dubbo Cattle, David Monk, good afternoon. With up to 45 millimetres of storm rain, numbers were back considerably on the expected draw for a yarding of 2,800. It was a good quality yarding with large numbers of cows along with good numbers of young cattle to suit the processes and feeders. There were only limited numbers of ground steers and heifers. Young cattle of the trade were around firm with the prime veilers selling to 3.30. Prime yearlings sold from 2.75 to 3.20. Feeder steers and heifers were up to 20 cents dearer with the feeder steers selling from 2.95 to 3.60 while the feeder heifers sold from 2.71 to 3.21. Following the good range, young cattle of the restockers were considerably dearer, with the young steers selling to 4.42 and the young heifers 400. Ground steers and heifers were 15 cents dearer, with the prime ground steers selling from 2.76 to 301. Prime ground heifers sold from 2.40 to 2.85. Cows were up to 24 cents dearer and more in places, with the two and three scores selling from 180 to 2.53. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 2.44 to 2.77 to average 2.64. Heavy bulls sold to 2.48. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. And Graham Richard has the results from the ass cattle market. 
Good afternoon. There was a lift in numbers to 628 and the rise was mostly in the cows. The quality was good, there were a few weaners and they were in demand from restockers as were the lighter yearlings. Medium weight feeders were better supplied while growing steers and heifers were limited. Around 210 mostly heavy cows were offered and the market sold to dearer trends. Weaner steers jumped 30 cents reaching 426, the heifers lifted 17 selling to 327. Feeder steers were firm, 280 to 330. The medium weight heifers also firm, 255 to 284. The heavy weights over 400 kilos topped at 288 and they lifted 13 cents. Prime growing steers gained 18, 286 to 292. The heavy growing heifers lifted 20 to 30 cents, 280 to 286. The digger runner cows had the three and four score cows averaging 22 cents stronger and they sold between 240 and 272 to average 267. The planer two score cows were pushed by restockers and sold between 240 and 269. And this has been Graham Richard. And with the results from Armadale Cattle, James Armitage. Good afternoon. A bright start to the market after a six-week layoff. 1,090 yarded with the first of the weaners. Cows and yearlings well supplied. Quality and condition was mostly good in front of a full field of buyers. Deer trends throughout. Yearling heifers and cows seeing the greatest improvement. Steer weaners made from 330 to 392. Heifers to 320. Medium and heavy yearling steers 304 to 376. Medium and heavy feeder heifers 270 to 326 cents. Heavy ground steers to process 280 to 306. Three and four score grown heifers, 260 to 285. A very strong cow market in line with what's been happening elsewhere. Heavy three and four scores, 220 to 271. Heavy bulls, substantially dear, reaching 292 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Armidale. Thanks, James. And in other news today, Cattle Australia is calling for the federal government to scrap its proposed biosecurity levy on primary producers, which was announced in last year's budget. The peak body for grass-fed cattle producers is one of 50 ag groups that have sent a letter to the Prime Minister calling for a reversal of the levy, which is intended to collect about $50 million per year. Earlier this week, we heard from grain producers and wool producers as well. And we'll keep you updated on the government's response. But uh, that's it for lunch today. I'll hand you back to the cricket now.